Iowa everywhere. Sage Rosenfels, Brent Bloom. Heard and, Heard and viewed exclusively across the world, only on Iowa Everywhere. Hello, everybody. This is Sage Rosenfels. Welcome to the Iowa Everywhere Network and the Rosenbloom Show. Today, I have on a special guest, a special friend of mine, Mike Silver. Long time, long time as in, I don't know, like seven decades, I think, uh, uh, covering the NFL, always from the West Coast the best coast mike would say uh mike you, mike thanks for uh, coming on my show sage of course i will come on your show in fact uh during the pandemic my daughter natalie and i started a podcast the pass it down podcast she is a big fan of yours from social media and obviously we you were on our list but when we had sage it was amazing. I think it was, I think you were with us for like two plus hours and it was all good. And we cut it up into like two episodes and did these social clips. And one of the social clips is just about as big as anything we ever put out because it's you recounting the story of talking to then Texans quarterback, David Carr about Cal McNair, the chairman of the team and the son of the late owner, Bob McNair, uh, sitting on the floor like a scene from Tommy Boy playing video games with no furniture in his office. And I mean, the whole podcast was great, but that was a gift to the podcast. Well, I I think the thing is I was in league for basically 12 years, five teams uh, and a couple of teams twice. So you could almost say like seven different moves within that. You end up being with a lot of different characters. You know, there's 53 guys that make the roster, but there's like 90 that start. They all come from various places all over the country, sometimes all over the world. You travel all around, you meet people. Of course, there's all, there's 20 coaches or whatever on every staff. And just, there's so many stories that go into these, these moments over the course of even a 11 year career, you have stories and that's, some, there's a lot of reasons we became friends. You know, I got, I sort of dipped into the media after my playing career. A lot of players do that, but you start sort of meeting these people that you only knew sort of from an, from an interview standpoint, you couldn't really be honest with them too much, or you had to sort of uh, be, you know, pro team or, you know, not say bad things about the starting quarterback, of course. And so that was our relationship when I was playing, it was really professional. Didn't really know y'all that well, probably at the end, we started talking a little bit more playing behind Favre and, and Eli. Uh, sometimes I probably get a phone call about certain things, you know, looking for a little information. Uh, but then I got done playing and started hanging out with you and your uh, nerdy media friends uh, that cover the NFL. And I realized I was having a lot more fun going from like Super Bowl party to Super Bowl party, or might have been a combine situation than I ever really had when I was playing. Uh, when I was when I would go out with like my former teammates, you know, the and conversations you, were were funnier. And for, per, and for perspective, when you say nerdy, you know that there's no cooler media person to hang out with <laughs> than me. I mean, we're not sitting there going, Gene, let's break down uh, cover two on that play. Like we're partying. Yeah. We're going, we're going out to real like functions with cool people and 
getting after it. It's not we do well. You an elite an elite athlete, but we're with them a lot. We're elite conversationalists with powerful people. Basically, is what we end up being by the end of the night. It does seem like we get into situations of uh, sharing bottles of wine with owners uh, from here and there, Um, and then next you know the owners talking about their. We took one to Steak and Shake at five in the morning. A billionaire. We took it. We took an owner, a billionaire, uh, to yes, Steak and Shake. Is that what it was? Yes, Steak and Shake. This is Indianapolis. I think it was more like four thirty. You stayed in the car because you had you were still collecting information. I was going to going to get the the burgers and and the shakes. Um, we, We 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 get ourselves into these type of situations. You, for being a media person, you do have your own. I think sort of uh, abilities to socialize, whether in, in particular quarterbacks, in particular quarterbacks for some reason that are either West Coast or back to the Bill Walsh days of Joe Montana uh, to now they sort of Shanahan McFay. You have a specialty, but also then the owners who half of them, I assume, really do like you. And the other no, half, 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 half of them do you. not. No, I only have about five, but one of them is going to be in town coming up in a few days. Jimmy Ursay with his band of rock stars that he plays with. He's fun. Um, but yeah, you were with, you were with me in one of the fun ones, but remember Sage, I did a book with Dennis Rodman. Like I've been afflicted with, you know, I took my collegiate skill, which was partying really hard at Cal and see the Cal helmet behind me. And I uh, tried to extend the college lifestyle and then ultimately started rolling with athletes and now I'm old. So yeah, you're right. A lot of times it's coaches and front office people. Be- and, be- and before, owners. before we get into actual real NFL discussion today, I want to talk about Brock Purdy, uh, my yes. State Cyclone who had a huge yes. uh, uh, win the other day. Um, when did you realize that actually staying up late and, and going out to dinners and having drinks with whether it's owners or quarterbacks or head coaches, all of a sudden opened you up to a ton more information and help you helped you do your job better. Um, just, just by just knowing more, not necessarily using it actually in an article, but just knowing situations much better. Yeah. Um, very early. So I started covering the 49ers back in 1989 at the age of 24 for the now defunct Sacramento union, then the Santa Rosa press Democrat. Um, and I was competing against 15 daily print beat writers. There were so many newspapers, including Ira Miller of the Chronicle, who probably is the greatest beat writer of all time. And yeah, I had no chance, you know, they were plugged in with John McVeigh, who was then the GM and uh, George Seifert was a rookie head coach and so many people in the organization. So my only chance was to try to bro out with young players uh, and Eddie DeBartolo, by the way, he liked me, but uh, yeah. So I was just looking for any, way to survive but also yeah i felt like relationships and being let in and access instinct you know instinctively that was always my play and then when i got to sports illustrated in 1994 and people wanted to hang out with me because SI was so big back then um and that was really the the key to what we were doing so um, I really was able to to fuel that and I tended to connect with the uh you know the weirder and the more out there the 
better chance I connected. And that went from Rodman to Barry Switzer to Andre Risen, uh, you know, Edger and James, you know, usually the, the people with the stronger personalities, which is why you and I ultimately were destined to get along because you are, you are not your normal NFL. Like, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, study tape and try to like, you know, help the team one day at a time. So that, that's, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, I though I respect and, and think Tim Tebow seems to be a great human being. He and I are different in a lot of ways, and which leads me to be hanging out with you more. Uh, who else hang, hangs out with Dennis Rodman? I guess. I guess what's that yeah. say about me? I, it, I, it is what it is. I don't know. Yeah, Tim Tim Tebow and I have the same birthday, and I agree is a delightful young man, but or not not as young anymore. But I would say I'd put it this way: I don't know, and you don't know what's going to happen when we're all gone. Nobody can really know that, in my opinion. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that if there's a place that people go. Tim Tebow will be in one place and you and I will be in a different place than yes. Tim Tebow. After the, after one the way, event, after the event the that other. we're all together, like at the, the NFL, the, the honors event at the Super Bowl, we're there. Then afterwards, oh, I mean, we go to different, I mean in the, different parts I mean of town. I mean the afterlife. No, I'm talking about the afterlife. Oh, that, I'm that saying, too. we don't that know too. what happens, but whatever happens, if something happens, if Tim Tebow's going to say here, probably you and I will be here. Yeah. The afterlife is really just the after party. That's the way I sort of see it. You know, that's what I'm hoping. I'm, that's, that's what I'm banking on. I feel like there is a chance that we are just dust and bone that nothing happens, but it's not really fun to think about that. Well, last thing before we get into the party thing, there, a, a thing occurs when you're a player and you sit your locker and sometimes, you know, you're, you're thrust into the spotlight, you're the backup quarterback and the starter is hurt. And so now you know, you're getting the reps. And so you have, 15 cameras in front of you and all the reporters. And most of those you really try to, you you look at not really as the enemy, but you look at it with like sort of an arm's length. I'm giving you as much information as I can give you, but from a player's perspective, certain uh, journalists, once they've reached a point where actually the journalist journalist is way more famous than the backup quarterback. And you were one of those, you are one of those guys. You have that capability and that history, and you've got that respect earned. Um, you know, when, when Peter King calls, you answer, you, you do that quick interview and, and other people don't get that interview. Right. And, and there's those certain people around the league uh, that have so much respect that you do get the extra information. Cause you know, if you're going to talk about it, a lot of people are going to list, are, are going to read about it or hear about it or whatever. So your like distribution channel is, is way more important in your, uh, your, your, I don't know, status as a, as a journalist gets you a lot of yeah, information too. But I would also argue that that was all a product of erring on the side of the relationship, forming legitimate relationships. And I always joke where people are like, how did you get that guy to say that? I'm like, well, I'm an exceptionally charming MF, right? And part of that is sarcasm, but part of it is obviously I have an ability or a affliction, whatever it is, but obviously I'm able to connect with people at a level that is beyond like, Hey man, just tell me what's going on. And so I do think like, I remember the first time you and I really talked, um, I went into Houston, which I didn't do that often. And you had played and done well. I mean, I'd been a fan of you on the field, you know, and I kind of asked them to bring me you and Matt shop. Cause at the time you had both kind of played and, you know, 
you were both kind of the quarterback. Uh, I think he was probably just coming back after you had played. And uh, I, I interviewed you one after the other. And I want to say this respectfully to Matt Shaw because I have nothing against him. And he's, a, he was a really good player. And um, I think a good person, but you know, our interview was like not super conversational and fun. And it was very basic and kind of what you alluded to, like all this guy's just, I'm just going to tell him the bare minimum and I don't really have much to say. And then you and I start talking and I don't even think we were really talking about football after a few minutes. And probably not. Yeah. We were just having fun and being humans. And so the fact that, um, you know, in both of our cases that we are people who connect on a human level, I think, it just makes it better for everyone because I'm not out there to just burn you and take anything you told me and, and just get a story, but I, I, you can help illuminate what's going on. And then ultimately, if we have that good relationship, I can say to you like, Hey, I'm hearing that Brett is not really a huge fan of Brad Childress. Brad Childress. <laughs> Could you help me out here? And then if I go on TV or write something, I could be like, you know, sources say that Brett Favre kind of thinks Brad Childress uh, might be. But my answer, even, even at that time when I was playing was probably fairly politically correct. I would probably answer like, I don't know, Michael, what do you think? You know, and like that, that was, <laughs> well, well, that, was a, well, of, that would confirm what you're really looking for in the first place. One of your teammates, I remember during that stretch, texted me something to the effect of Brett just said out loud that Chile is, quote, the worst football mind I've ever encountered in all my years. And so I, I, like, I felt like I had a sense of it. So you the fact that, and I feel, I feel like you would have at least been like, Mike, you are on the wrong track here. Brad Childress is the second coming of Mike Shanahan. <laughs> leave it alone. So again, not to kill Brad Childress, but I guess I'm kind of killing Brad Childress. Okay, to kill Brad Childress metaphorically. Uh, sorry, Brad. Well, well, let, let's move on to uh, a, a different connection. The other night, Brock Purdy, yeah, comes into the 49ers. Was it the first quarter he came in? Yeah, uh, after the after 20... the first drive, second drive. Yeah. yeah. I, I missed that. I missed the first, my brother, I'm driving. My brother calls me. He's like, Hey, Purdy's in and he's playing really well. And you got a touchdown, like in the first or second drive. And so I, uh, uh, we were actually driving. I wasn't driving. My girlfriend was driving. So I put the, put the TV or my, my phone on and uh, basically watched the rest of the game. He played really well, 25 or 37, 210. So not a lot of big plays down the field, uh, a touchdown. Tight windows, a lot of zero people coming in his, coming in his line of vision, perf, you know, coming at him head on and he hung tight. And, you know, I don't understand it like you obviously are close, but he seemed to throw the ball into tight windows under duress pretty yeah. often. Yeah. I'm going to tell you my, actually, I'm going to ask you yours first. Your, uh, when you heard about Brock Purdy coming to the 49ers, you, you cover them very closely. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you know that I had gone to Iowa state and I probably brought yes. him up in conversation. What yeah. were your thoughts when he rolled into Santa Clara and you first chatted with him or saw him? you know, he's not a, a, a super talkative person. Right? right. So I'd love to hear your first impressions from, from then, which would have been what may, uh, yeah, well, 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 no, because no. I didn't. I probably I didn't see him till August because I took a job at, at okay. the San Francisco Chronicle as a columnist. But I'll tell you the whole journey. So that helmet up there was Jared Goff's helmet at Cal. So for the listeners and viewers like you, I'm very connected to my alma mater, and you, of course, as a proud Iowa State uh, former 
star quarterback have been telling me about Brock Purdy for the four years he was a starter. So, yeah. So I knew that and I knew, you know, and I know you don't just tell me quarterbacks are good because they went to Iowa state. Like you, I I knew you thought he was good. So I kind of went in with an open mind. I talked to someone who's very close to Kyle Shanahan, um, just about some other stuff over the off season. But one of the things that came up was Brock Purdy. And I got a glowing report, not a, wow, I think he could be something like this is a guy who could be a really good NFL quarterback. So I kind of had this high standard. Yeah. So then I came to the shit show that was uh 49 trading camp where Jimmy's off throwing to a side on a side field as a spectacle. Like they're going to trade him. He doesn't even go to meetings. Uh, Trey Lance is sometimes accurate and sometimes looking like Tim Tebow in practice where he was throwing the ball off trees, you know, not quite that bad, but like, I was like, whoa, Trey Lance really doesn't have consistent accuracy. Jimmy's over here, but they're going to trade him. You know, and I couldn't really tell much about Purdy, but um, one thing that became very clear to me talking to people over those next few weeks was that that same that that opinion I had heard about Brock Purdy from someone close to Kyle Shanahan was shared by at least one other person, and that person seemed to be Brock Purdy. So, I, like, I was like, "Wow, he so that he is he has made an impression on his teammates." Some eye rolls with his self-confidence and I've seen quarterbacks do that before in weird situations, including Aaron Rodgers when he was coming in and Brett was yeah. there, right? Like, wow, this guy's really got a high opinion of his own abilities, which can be huge. That could be really important if you, if you can back it up. So uh, then there was a preseason game in Houston. The last preseason game, he fit a couple balls into tight windows, like over linebackers. Again, I don't understand it like you do, but like seemed to have some shit to him the way he they call that layering it. of the football over the linebackers, but in front of the safeties, it's a layering right. of the football. Yeah. But with people coming, it looked like, wow, that's a ballsy throw. And then there were other moments where it looked like, you know, whoa, he doesn't really understand the speed of the NFL game or other rookie shit that happens to most people. So, and I kind of got the impression from some of the coaches that, yeah, he's got something to him and he believes in himself and that's all good. But also he's got a, you know, gunslinger streak that hasn't been beaten out of him yet. And that, that scares the hell out of us. Right. So then the season goes on, Jimmy comes back, Trey gets hurt. Jimmy's the man. They've got this great team. They're making a run. And I write this incredibly uh, in-depth column on Jimmy after sitting down and talking to him and about how Jimmy's living in the moment. And that's the key to Jimmy. And it comes out on Sunday. And then on Sunday, Jimmy, breaks his foot and there's Brock Purdy. So that was do not, do not write the articles about Brock Purdy then do not. Yeah. And so one of the things I had heard about Brock Purdy, and I did put this in my first Chronicle column, though I had to be very creative how I said it because it's not fit for print. I said he he does have a nickname in there. Um, It's similar to the nickname you told me about uh, regarding uh, then Eagles uh, quarterback Nick Foles going into that Super Bowl where you have big as the first word and then you have the first name is the last word and then you have a rhyme that uh, talks about a part of the male anatomy in the middle. So big blank Nick and now we have big blank Brock. And so that's what they were <laughs> calling him. And and you'll love this, Sage. Right, who, who is this? Who is calling him this? 
uh, his teammates. So you, so Sage, you'll love this because uh, I know George Kittle. Speaking of you know Iowa connections, I, I'm you know big George Kittle fan. Know him really well, and he has fun with the whole you know daily media interaction as I do. And so um, after the game, long after, there's a crowd of maybe 10 media people around Kittle's locker asking him about Purdy, maybe 15. And someone brings up, does he have a nickname? And Kittle kind of laughs and says, yeah, I can't really tell you that and makes a joke about it. So when it was over, I went up to George and I said, so you didn't want to say big blank Brock into the masses. And he said, "Uh, yeah, no, probably not a good idea. And then I said, so is that based on, anatomical observation or is it more of a metaphor and you're a journalist uh, Kittle, you need to know i right and Kittle look and just goes mike well i haven't really um you know scoped it out to that degree yet so i'll i'll be sure to get back to you and as that's happening Brock walks by it's just like the three of us and you know and brock's just kind of shake his head and Kittle goes I'm going to go with wordy purdy and Brock's like, yeah, okay, good call. And that was that. So yes, he does have a, uh, Nick Foles esque nickname. Uh, I don't know if that's just figurative or literal or both, but, um, it's a cool story. Now I don't know if Brock Purdy's going to be able to, you know, sustain what we saw in that first game. Once people are game planning for him and, and over the course of what they hope will be a playoff run, maybe he can because they're a really good team, but um, I'm excited that it looked as good as it did, you know, with him getting thrown in. I mean, it's gotta be excited. Yeah. How well he played first game, but also that, he seems to be a guy that has confidence in himself. One like my one of my struggles with was as a player was like second guess yourself. That happens to a lot of quote unquote smart players because you overthink things and it's so important to you. And and Brock has always played with this freedom, uh, a freedom and confidence that Jimmy's um, like, Jimmy's, Jimmy's like that too. Yeah. Right. And, um, there is something about that. Just like a DB has to have the most confidence that they're going to shut this guy down. And even if they get burnt for a touchdown, they're going to come back. And Brock has that, like, I, all right, I might throw a pick, but I'm going to come back. And he's a, he is a gunslinger. All right. And he is a playmaker and he is extremely accurate as a quarterback. That's, that's one of the important things you're, you're, you're going to get there in San Francisco. Here's my impression of Brock Purdy. I go to an Iowa state practice, I guess, four or five years ago, five years ago. And I'm looking at the quarterbacks, there's three or four of them out there. And one of them is this sort of short, sort of stubby, true Looks freshman. Looks like a kicker. Looks like a kicker. Yeah, sort of stubby yeah. body, true freshman yeah. though. And he's throwing it pretty good. He's accurate. His ball's not spinning great. Like it, it, it comes off okay. But uh, one of the head coaches, sort of right-hand guys is like, man, this Purdy, he's a playmaker. They're two or three weeks in a training camp at this point. And, and I'm like, hmm, really this little guys. And then I, they do like a red zone drill. And he does, he goes back there and he pump fakes somebody and runs around and makes a throw. I'm like, huh, pretty yeah, not cause, what I, cause, cause it wasn't reminding you of Brett Favre at first, right? Like it wasn't like, it was not, <laughs> it was he wasn't not. Thro- yeah. yeah. You know, he, he was not. The, the ball wasn't coming off his hand of like, wow, this guy is sweet. Right. He, he, he right. definitely wasn't a five-star recruit. He definitely wasn't, um, you know, trained by the best trainers in the, you know, the whole scene in high school and, and you know, whatever. So, so I, I go into uh, watching him 
I think he sat for the first four or five games. And then they, he started there like the second half of his freshman year and he is out there. I'm like, this kid is balling. Like he is out there making, th- I just remember my, I always compare myself as a true freshman or myself as a rookie or second year player in the league. And I just know how like inequipped I was to have made that jump. I needed time to sort of adjust and get better in all the ways, mentally, physically. And he's out there like making plays as a true freshman and big time college football and making great throws. And so over the course of his career at Iowa state, and they had some big moments. They went to bowl games. I, I think every year um, went nine and three, one year, won the Fiesta bowl, but his style was always sort of that though. It was, if there was a pressure coming, he'd, he'd catch the snap and just sort of move to the left. Right. That's like, that's not traditionally taught, right? It wasn't like, it wasn't a, a timing offense uh, uh, per se. And Brock was doing a lot of like playmaking and improvising and these really, really fun things. But sometimes it would, lead to turnover or, or just not getting the ball out on third down and three. And he's holding the ball a little bit too long back there and takes a sack or, you know, just these various things. They also weren't shotgun the whole time. There's no uh, real, um, they had good running backs, but there wasn't like play action and the traditional under center, uh, offense, a lot of RPOs and a lot of, you know, uh, faking to the running back and hitting the backside sidearm, you know, slant. And then I met his parents yeah, he, after a game and sidearms. Yeah. yeah. I met his parents after the game and, uh, his dad was a baseball player. And so I'm learning all this about his family, but uh, just from that, my immediate first impression was, wow, this kid is really impressed me. He really impressed me at a very, very young age at 18 years old. So he, he finishes his career and his career was really up and down. He didn't have like a great ending to his career. You'd like to have your senior year. The kid has the best year of his career. And they didn't, I think they went seven and six. They, they lost a Clemson, a bowl game and, um, offense wasn't great. Uh, uh, but, uh, he gets dragged. Well, I shouldn't say that the season ends. He has this throwing coach named Will Hewlett that I work with. Will, part of our, you yes. know, Will and an Aussie, uh, an Aussie, a proud Aussie. So Brock's senior year ends and he's going to work with Will Hewlett who lives down in Jacksonville. Will's like my throwing guy at the quarterback collective. You met Will. He's uh, an Aussie. He's an Aussie, correct? Yeah. Actually the, the first Australian born U S f- college football player, I think was his deal. So he's been trained high school kids for 20 years. Um, so the, a throwing guy. Right. And, uh, he's like, Hey, I got last year, two years ago, it was Ian book. Uh, a couple years ago, it was, uh, it was um, kid from Brian Lewerke from Michigan state. And I, you know, I've got to have these kids over the last few years. I really enjoy it. I, sometimes I go visit and we actually train on the field and throw and classroom work. And, uh, with Brock though, I couldn't make it down there. So we did, we did about five, I would say two and a half to three hour film sessions. And it was great because I already had a relationship with him a little bit, you know, enough, but I never really talked football with him. I don't sit in the Iowa state quarterback rooms and talk about ball and what he's seeing. And that's not my, 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 not my business. Right. So we worked for five weeks and uh, I would also zoom in or FaceTime in on even some of his throwing sessions to talk about footwork and play action and these things that he really hadn't done under center uh, uh, footwork and things and, and try to get him caught to speed. What's interesting about all of that though, of the 15 hours uh, we probably watched the, of who we watched the most San Francisco, huh. the second well. most, probably the Packers, the third most, um, Rams trying to think the Rams same offensive, uh, not exact system, but same. It's the same tree. It's the Shanahan tree. tree. So I taught him and that's, 
How I learned football the best was from Kyle. And this is, again, we love the no disrespect, but no disrespect to Jimmy Ray and Brian Schottenheimer when I was a rookie or Norv Turner for a couple years or uh, Mark Tressman or, you know, afterwards, Daryl Bevel and, and Kevin Gilbride, who won two Super Bowls with the Giants and Eli's offense. I learned the most in my career in the shortest amount of time from Kyle when he was my quarterback. Hey, Daryl Bevel's uh, coaching for Mike McDaniel now. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So now he's getting a, a taste of this, of this whole thing. So in 2009, I get traded to, to the Vikings and I'm like, oh man, this, I played pretty well in, in Kyle's offense and Kubiak's offense, this outside zone and bootlegs and play action and other teams I was on. We, we didn't do as much of that. We'd occasionally run a boot or occasionally run a play action, but this seemed to really have such fine details and be so hard on defenses and so easy for a quarterback. I'd get these like easy 20 yard completions. To You're like, Wisconsin. where's, where's Kevin Walter wide open. Oh, there he is. Owen Daniels is completely yeah, open in the, the middle guy, of the field. Boom. But it was, it was like a, an, a, an offense that was sort of complex, but it was just, I guess, user friendly. Um, you had to be smart. You had to know your things, but you, I really felt in my career uh, that during those three years that I could play in this league, I could play in this league at a pretty dang high level. I had confidence. They sort of make things fairly black and white as what we're doing and what our, what we're trying to do with each play and your footwork and your timing. And, and, but their designs were so good. Kyle was like, he took Kubiak's sort of outside zone bootleg and, and play action system and just, brought to a whole new level, you know, cause Kyle Beck, well, what we should do is this and then this. And then when they do this, we're going to do this. And I'm like, this is mind blowing to me. I think it was like, actually mind blowing to most, most people in football. Cause they, that's not how football was. It was uh, very much more pocket passing and under center. Uh, but more like straight drop back pass a lot. And if it was shotgun drop back pass a lot. And that's just the hardest thing to do to me as a quarterback is to be in the pocket drop back pass. So anyway, so I'm teaching, Brock, uh, uh, this system, because it, it's how I learned it the best. And also I, I feel like Kyle and Sean and, and LaFleur, now the LaFleurs, uh, th when I watch their games, I can see what they're doing. I know why the tight ends out here. I know why the receivers in a tight split and what his options are. I know who's supposed to block who, because at the end of the day, they're still running the same base system is 2007, eight Houston Texans. There's like the basics of some of the running game and, um, uh, where players are in the field and how Kyle thinks. Right. So, and then boom, Brock gets end up, end up, ends up being Mr. Relevant, uh, uh, drafted by San Francisco. And, and I did ask people because I was like, why'd he go so late? You know, once I start, once I heard this glowing report about him and kind of saw that he, it looked like he'd be a guy who had a chance in this offense, I was like, why did he go so late? And they're like, well, he's short. And you know, the arm's not amazing. It's good. It's fine. And um, well, no, it's not. I mean, I don't, he can barely throw the ball past 50 yards. Probably. I mean, he's drew Brees esque. He's, he's very accurate on short and intermediate routes and has really good touch. And also like sort of that play, like, like a escapability. And he has the, um, sort of, I don't know what, what, what's the word that drew had just the ability to, to find a way. Like there's just a but, find a way but, sort of mentality. Yeah. And I would just, this is a huge thing though, because Trey Lance, so they traded three ones to get up to three and they took Trey Lance who was all based on promise, right? He had played very few games at North Dakota state, a lower level of college football, uh, lower than even Cal. Uh, and uh, he, you know, so it's a lower level of college football. It's 
a program that was already good when he got there. And he, because of COVID, he only played one game that last year and he played what 18 total. He never had a two minute drive. And obviously he had some tantalizing qualities and he's supposed to be very, very smart. So all of that is cool, but he was drafted based on promise. Whereas Brock's like the opposite. Brock played from, as you said, what the fifth game of his freshman year. So one thing they kept telling me that they loved about him is yeah, he, he looks like a guy who's played a lot of football and that was really resonant in that building because Trey most certainly does not. And it's their job to try to figure out if they can get him to that ceiling. But in the meantime, you've got a guy with a floor that's way up here because he played. Yeah. I mean, you know, Brock's just his, his mindset every single day, he's been in that spotlight, you know, Iowa state's not, uh, Texas Longhorns, but there's, you don't think Ames, Ames is not, uh, is not Austin. There's not Pavarazzi, you know, the Pavarazzi is not chasing him around, you know, but he, yeah, but just being in in the spotlight, whether it's high school or college, but for, for, for three and a half years, he was in the spotlight dead center. I mean, the whole team, and really a lot of times their success relied on how well he played and if he sort of made those plays or not. So it's, it is a sort of fascinating study of no, almost no experience, tons of experience, this sort of physical high upside, but how long is that going to take to a guy who like, he's already, he's already worked off all of that uh, no experience thing. And now he's like, can be ready to, to go in. So I, I think that's going to give him uh, a huge advantage here. I actually think, call me crazy. Because I think the 49ers, I think they might be the best team in the NFL. Yeah, I, 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 w- I would agree player for player. It's just now you have, player. A, you have a rookie third-string quarterback. But here, here's I, I believe this is going to happen. I believe this is going to happen. I do. I'm, I'm going to say this right now. I think the 49ers are going to win the Super Bowl. With Brock Purdy. With Brock Purdy. I you know what's going to happen? I think there's something magical there. You see a guy come in with no experience. And not, I have and he a, played really well. I have a story. So in the locker room, long after the game, Jason Cole, who covered you in Miami, who went to Stanford when I went to Cal, I worked with at Yahoo, says to me, hey, Mike, um, if Brock Purdy ends up winning the Super Bowl with the Niners, is that as good as Kurt Warner? So I said, number one, Kurt Warner was stocking supermarket shelves. It's not, let alone wasn't drafted. Number two, when Kurt Warner came in, he suddenly became the best player in the whole league after having been nowhere. So that would have to happen. I said, thirdly, that's the helmet from the American underdog movie. That's a Kurt Warner SI story. I wrote a effing book on the guy in 2000 that 21 years later became a major motion picture. So I might not be objective when it comes to that question. And then I said, I think the better comp is Jeff Hostetler in 1990 with the Giants who had a veteran good team. Phil Sims got hurt. Hostetler came in, they got hot and he did win the Super Bowl. I think it would be more like that. I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. Kurt Warner, all right. Uh, he played after, all right. So he he, he finishes college. He's like twenty 
eight years old, nine yeah. years old when that thing happens, right? 20, so he does. 26. He had, well, he had, a, he had NFL Europe experience. He had NFL training camp experience. Arena for, ball. For arena ball for a number of years, a million snaps, right? So he's older. And I think that is a, that is a big difference. If um, Brock Purdy throws the equivalent of 41 touchdowns prorated that's true. in his short time and is the most valuable player during that stretch. And then his Super Bowl MVP after throwing for a Super Bowl record yardage, uh, including a 70-something yard pass to a receiver to win it, then I will start entertaining stories. But he also wasn't stocking supermarket shelves where people were like, what's your dream? My dream is play quarterback in the NFL with the Super Bowl. (laughs) Does that really happen? Yeah, that that is true. But the unlikelihood um, in both situations is, is, it would be is, unlikely. is, is a pretty cool deal. Uh, San Francisco though, their team, their defense is, is incredible. Yeah. They have great skill position players. I think one of the best coaches in the national football league. Um, I think Brock's in, you couldn't have put a kid in a better position. You could no. not have put a kid in a better position to be successful. We have seen this offense excel for young for Tua. we saw Tua the jump from like eh, i don't think he's a starter to like he might win the mvp of course right. last week but right the, the offense from sort of quarterback after quarterback has just been you know ryan Tannehill. he's a failure in miami all of a sudden he's a really good quarterback in tennessee well that's when matt lafleur was calling the plays there and zion and zion those plays well i think it was i think it was after lafleur i think it was arthur I, I, well, they, but they they all were sort of related together in the same, you know, sort of tree. Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting that young quarterbacks can be really successful in this, what seems like a super complex offense. Cause you, you, this guy's been there for eight years. Their college offense was not a pro offense. And all of a sudden he's out there, looks like managing the team and the offense extremely well for a rookie. You, you know how people ask, does he love it about a player? Let's ask that about Arthur Smith, the head coach of the Falcons. Does he love it? Because coaches work way harder, right? They work too hard. Does he love it? I think he does because his dad is Fred Smith, who founded FedEx. Arthur Smith's got to be the richest coach in history. He could be doing anything. By far. He could be chilling by the pool. He could be sitting on the floor with no furniture, playing video games and owning a team. So I would, I would say Arthur Smith, say what you will about the Falcons or he's done a good job as a coordinator. He loves the game. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll see what happens with Purdy. Uh, it's interesting to hear your perspective of when he showed up there and I've known him for four or five years longer, work with him a little bit. I'm excited for him. I think that you, you, uh, didn't, you didn't know that the same nickname that you, I did not, and I didn't come up with that to. nickname. Yeah. No, uh, I believe the one AJ, who told Feely, me about it. AJ Feely, uh, my Eagles friend, you know, every, get up a friend for like each team. And so like, yes. you know, my Eagles friend is AJ. And he told me that nickname for, for Mr. Nick Foles. But I also saw it at the Super Bowl in Minneapolis. I saw it in the, the restroom. I'm walking into the restroom and the guy. Yeah. Right in front of you me, sent me like, the photo. I, I, the I photo still that. I mean, I incredible. still said that I sent that photo out to somebody asked me today, a friend in California texted me and said, has there ever been a quarterback with a nickname that speaks to his anatomy like that? And I just sent that photo <laughs> of the guy in the Jersey. And then by the way, I said, by the way, Randy, the big unit Johnson was an athlete. That's right. I mean, you, you can't spell it out, the big unit uh, Johnson. So I, I would say this though. Uh, 
I, on NFL Network, I used to, on the aftermath, I always used to talk about big Nick energy when Nick Foles would do something. I, I don't think I could do that with Brock's because it's big Brock energy. Yeah, but yeah. it's just, it's one thing, like, I think you could call someone a dick or talk about a dick even, but if you start using that other word that starts with a C, Can't. it's, it seems more, it, I think like one's playboy and one's hustler. I feel like one is, I feel like, uh, uh, one of them is one of the seven words you can't say on television or whatever that the, well, actually in the Carlin routine, he says, well, you can say it, uh, if you know, uh, you, you can say it if it's a religious feast day. Oh, the cock crowed three times. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, anyway, <laughs> as I, think I, just, well, I think I just revealed the nickname uh, as, as uh, well, a couple other stories. Let's talk about the, the league a little bit yeah. today. Baker Mayfield thought might go to the 49ers. He's not going to go to the Rams, try to restart his career, get into this uh, offense. He's been in a similar version in, in Cleveland with Stefanski. They run this sort of scheme. Uh, as well. So that's sort of a story of this week. But as we head into the weekend, as we now are into you know mid-December, um, where are we in this league? And uh, and what are the, the big stories for uh, over the course of the next, you know, five, six days? Well, I think there have been some great quarterback stories this year. Jimmy Garoppolo was one of them, you know, given up for gone by your team. They bring you back as a hedge. Trey gets hurt and you ascend well that's over now unfortunately sucks for jimmy he's out for the year um Tua was another one uh no confidence believed to be a complete bust who probably can't be a starter in this league mike mcdaniel shows up a gives him love and mike mcdaniel as you know is sincerely a guy who sees the good in players what you can do not what you can't so that that makes sense but also designed a scheme to feature his strengths and traded for Tyree kill, which helps any scheme. And so um, I, I thought those are two great stories, but I was, I said something about that on social media and somebody said, yeah, what about Gino? Gino Smith is a hell. I mean, if you and I sat here last year and said, okay, so the Seahawks are going to trade Russell Wilson for, an amazing amount of picks. He's going to get paid by his new team and he's going to look suddenly like someone who can't really function in the NFL. I'm not saying he can't, but it kind of looks that way all of a sudden. Whoa. While conversely, Geno Smith will become a starter after a decade, uh, you know, a big wash to shore and be one of the highest rated quarterbacks in this league. We would have been like, um, is that Indica or is that Sativa or is that a hybrid? And you took too many of Bellagrams, whoever said that. Well, it wasn't uh, uh, whatever it was, uh, what Aaron Rodgers took last summer, ayahuasca. Not ayahuasca. No, yeah. that's, that's, I think that, you, that, when you, I think that, 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 that I think I made things worse up there in Green Bay. I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't seem like Aaron Rodgers' enlightenment has coincided with, no, with uh, that. victories. Yeah. It, it has not. Um, yeah, I, I, the backup quarterback position, I've had a few conversations about this because this has been a year where, and occasionally it happens, where a guy who is a first-round pick or a second-round pick or played some as a young guy and he stinks, and then he gets sort of relegated to you're going you're gonna to be a backup quarterback somewhere and try to revamp your career or just sort of like play it out, you know, Blake Albert, just play it out. You know, you're going to try to extend this thing for 12 to 15 years and see how much money you can make, but your days probably as a starter 
just not it. You know, you're talented enough. You're a first round pick, second round pick. Like you have talent and you're, you're a nice guy. And so if you're a good locker room guy, like there's only so many good quarterbacks. And then, but what happens is this, you actually start learning the game more and more and more. The pressure's off your backup. You play for other players who are, who are better, uh, who have been around longer. Your knowledge every single day during that time of football just goes up. Your knowledge goes up and yes, you're still practicing. You're still working out. You're still throwing a ton and you just continue to work on your craft. And I, I think there is this sweet spot. It's like year eight, nine, uh, right where Gino is, where they had their three or four years in the sun and didn't work out. Then they had to go sit for like four years behind other, somebody else. And then all of a sudden, boom, you get your second chance and you're just not the player you were for a terrible jets franchise, right? right? All of a sudden you get some good coaching again, uh, uh, Shane Waldron, same system came from the Rams. Sorry. Yep. You get some coaching, uh, a head coach who believes in you. And yeah, going into the season, they were sort of like, who cares about Seattle? They don't even have Russell Wilson. It's drew lock or Gino. Yeah. But there's this, like the, the pressure all of a sudden just fell off. him when he became a backup and, uh, and now as a starter, and he obviously was not just hanging out uh, happy with this sort of backup role. And he just continued to work. Um, and I feel like you do see that in the NFL. You actually see development. It's incredible. Players can get better. And one of my biggest dislikes about sometimes with media or draft people is like, well, you can't really become a more accurate thrower. And I'm like, I promise you, you can't. If you keep working on it and keep working on it and you have throwing coaches and it's your job 12 months out of the year and you understand the, the key of all of it, the key to accuracy is actually understanding how football works. And the only way to do that is to just be in these film sessions and coaches meetings and quarterback meetings and watching film and watching other that people do it. And you just, you will get better and, now we've got a finished product that is a, you know, top 10 quarterback in the national football league. That's good to hear because, um, you know, I heard that like you, you can't teach accuracy for all those years. And then Josh Allen happened and he went from like 55% to 70 plus percent in like one season. Yeah. And Brian Dayball obviously deserved, you know, he got a head coaching job off of it and now is making Daniel Jones look okay. Like he's clearly very good at this, but like, I could see if like, you know, I'd see like what you said, like, Hey, he used to be 57 and now he's 63. Like, wow. Yeah. You know, it's really gotten better, but have you ever heard of anything like what happened with Josh Allen that dramatically, that appreciably? I mean, it sounds weird. My own story, my own story, my senior year, 52%, 52%. All right. I'd, I'd never had a private quarterbacks coach or a private trainer. My college quarterbacks coaches, great guys, but we never really worked on, throwing mechanics and things like that. And my understanding of coverage wasn't great. And our the style of our offense uh, probably wasn't a high percentage offense, whatever it was, but I threw for 52% and 10 touchdowns my senior year. Did and you hear it, a lot of, did you hear a lot of like, Hey Sage, just let it rip. Hey yeah. man, just go out there and, and let it fly, baby. Yeah, I, you, you, you do. But I, the thing is, I just didn't have the confidence. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing for one. Right. When, and when you don't know what you're doing, you're just not going to be as accurate at uh, with it. Right. Cause and, I mean, okay. I'm just quick interlude. Like you and I have this whole thing about coaches who 
you know, critics would call them meatheads. You and I would say that they are um, maybe more traditional in their assessment of, you know, how simple the game is against yes. the Kyle Shanahan crowd, that, for example. Um, I One of my, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but one of my favorites is the notion that we'll just be tougher. You know, we're going to be the tougher team. We're going to be more physical. We're going to be the guys who bite your kneecaps and, you know, like we're going to put our will onto them. And that's how we're going to win this game. Right. And and so I always feel like you could tell me, I I haven't had to actually do that, but like that sounds a exhausting and B not sustainable or tenable because you're playing against people who also really want to do well very much and are very tough. And it was very hard for them to get into I love how your funnel through became very simple into like into this league. <laughs> so if that's your thing, like we're just tougher, we're just blue collar. We're going to fight harder. I feel like there's a point where that might not be the way to actually sustain success. Well, I think as a quarterback, that's just a hard way to go. And, um, <laughs> you know, I did play for Wanstead and they still did sort of have that mentality very much. So, uh, defensive head coach and Dallas Cowboys back in the day, of course, why do you Jimmy think Ricky, Johnson. why do you think Ricky went to Nevada city and retired? Right. Wiki Ricky quit. That was one of the many reasons. Right. So, um, I have been there. I, I don't, I only know what it's like as a quarterback. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like as an offensive lineman or a guard to be like every single day, I'm going to go out there and, and run into a wall. I'm going to run into it a wall like- and my job is to run over that wall and through that wall. And every single day I'm going to push through that wall. And meanwhile, I feel what happens is, and what happened with me and, and this Kyle system was all of a sudden it's like, well, we're actually going to run around the wall. And then we're going to, we're going to fake and run around to the wall to the right. And then we're going to actually just run around to the around the wall to the left and the line be, like, oh, be open. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to wear pads or a helmet. I mean, that's like we, once the season started in Houston, we didn't wear, we didn't wear pads. We didn't wear shoulder pads. And, and uh, some practices we went without a helmet. We still like moved fast, but the physicality went away because the, the coaching became schematics and footwork and detail uh, and all those things over like, we're going to, you know, outwill you on Wednesday and Thursday, because then on Sunday, we're, we're going to outwill the opponent. Um, and, uh, it just, I, that's probably one of the reasons why so many foreign players have serious physical issues is because that's <laughs> the way the game physical and mental, that's where the game was for, for 50 years for sort of forever. And I think in recent they've, they've, they've made it into more of a, uh, a thinking man's game way more than it used to be. So it wasn't just that you were able to kick the opponent in the teeth. Yeah. You were able to win games. Yes. Yes. And I, yeah. And, and I, I, what I love about this, sort of the new stuff with some of the NFL and with like Mike McGannell being mic'd up sometimes is you see how he's talking to the players and so much in football and in coaching becomes like, well, he looks like he's a head coach. He, he looks the part per se, whatever that means players just want a coach to put them in position to be successful and teach them how to do it. And, and speak the truth or tell them how they feel, tell them how they feel and I for better or worse. Kyle has his style. Uh, Sean McVay has his style. Mike Tomlin has his style. And and then there's Mike McDaniel who is like, this guy wants to be the coach. He'll never get, he'll never even become a quarterback's coach. He just has no presence. He's not going to become a coordinator. Imagine him in a room with a bunch of 30, 30 year old men making $5 million or $40 million or whatever. Uh, you just can't imagine it. 
And then when you actually work with them and then you actually now see him as a head coach, the spotlights on, you see, well, actually he's just a, another human being out there who's trying to work with his players to try to maximize who they are. And, and part of that is the mental side of maximizing who they are, like absolute transparency. Uh, you can sort of see that. I saw a conversation between him and two of the other day. And he was like, oh, that was my fault. I screwed that up. And it's like, oh man, you, when does that happen? When does either a politician or a head football <laughs> coach say, I made a mistake there. I screwed that up. It just doesn't happen. But I think there's a new thing there with connecting with young people. They want to know why they don't want us to be told your jobs to run through a wall. They want to know why uh, I'm risking life and limb basically out here. Uh, to, to do it. And I think Mike does an incredible job in that offense does a really good job of, of, of for these players to sort of really have the, the rhyme and reason as to why they're, why they're trying to actually put their will on somebody else. I know you're a fan of the three word explanation. It just works. <laughs> yes. Why do we run this play? It just works. Far ran it back in the day, and man, he just found completions <laughs> all the time. I'm like, that's not helping me out. What are we attacking? What are we What are we trying to do here? So I'm going to go back and because because Favre made it work, I have to make it work. <laughs> it just works. <laughs> Nothing will ever change. Bill Walsh put it on the video back in the '80s, and we watched that just tape. Works. We read his book. <laughs> it yes. just works. But yeah, no, Mike McDaniel. I like. I feel, and I know you feel this too. Like I feel it's kind of a bummer that we have to share him with the world, right? Because he was kind of our secret for years and he's the most eccentric and quirky and non-traditional head coachy personality in some ways, you know, you can imagine he's got that super dry sense of humor. He's out there. But one thing I, I keep telling people is that, as you said, one reason this works is because he's being himself and he's very, um, he is, I, I know from talking to him over the years, you know, so many coaches will be like, Oh, this guy can't do this. Ah, oh, I can't believe. And Mike's always like, Oh man, but he does this one thing that is so cool. And I'm trying to get that to be, you know, what he does on the field, right? Like Mike does look for the positives. And, and yeah. so when you're coming off a guy who was a very good coach in Brian Flores, but who they felt in that building, like he was a nightmare interpersonally and specifically the quarterback was beaten down by Flores telling him. And, that, and that's a Belichick. Good. That's a Belichick uh, style, right? Yeah. Like interpersonal skills and how you talk to people. And there's a bill Walsh was originally very different. He came in and he was um, he talked to people uh, like, more like students than like prisoners uh, or, or something. Right. And, and the old school way of thinking was like, do this. And no matter what you're thinking, just do it. Cause that's why it, I just, said, so. works. it just works. <laughs> but, um, but, but yeah, but um, I, one thing I've learned and I, I hope that all future Belichick disciples will ultimately learn. Cause most of them decidedly have not is you don't win games in the NFL because you act like a jerk, like Bill Belichick, you do it for two other reasons. You are a brilliant coach like Bill Belichick and you have Tom Brady. If you can get those two things together, yeah. you're golden. You can yeah. act however you want, but simply acting like Bill Belichick without being as great a coach as Bill Belichick, which most people aren't. And specifically without having 
Tom Brady, <laughs> it makes it much harder to succeed. Well, Vrabel, uh, Mike Vrabel's really the only one that's had success, and he didn't coach for Belichick. He just played for him, and he's really yeah. the only sort of disciple of that sort of Belichick tree. So it's just sort of interesting. O'Brien had a O'Brien has a pretty good run in Houston. With yeah, some, not yeah, 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 but nothing like deep in the playoffs and. Well, they, I mean, they got to the they got to the divisional round, I guess. Divisional round. Vrabel got to the conference title game once. Yeah, I but think so. so it's similar. It's similar to Vrabel. Vrabel maybe has sustained it longer, but it's um yeah. And then some GMs have done well. You know, Dimitrov had a nice little run in Atlanta. But I I, I would say the people who have done best are the ones who haven't acted like Bill. Yeah. You know, they've been their own guy. And the ones who've tried to act just like Bill, which includes Matt Patricia, Joe Judge, Greg Schiano, even though he didn't come from there, he's buddies with Bill, um, Josh McDaniels uh, in Denver. You know, those guys, the guys who were like, I'm just going to go out and Belichick it. Um, you know, those guys have not done very well. Speaking of Bill Belichick, why does he hate you so much? Great segue. So Bill Belichick and I were, were pretty close and, um, you know, it was an era that was less, you know, like you could kind of be close with assistant coaches and have them help you without it being such a charged thing every day, you know, but I was, I met Bill Belichick, um, his last year in Cleveland when they were getting ready to move to Baltimore, um, right before their first game, which was against the Parcells Patriots. Um, it was actually at the opening of the rock and roll hall of fame. So I went to Cleveland first for SI and in the airport, I saw Bruce Springsteen, Snoop Dogg and Jackson Brown got off a plane together from LA. Like all the stars were coming in for the grand opening of the rock and roll hall of fame and the first ceremony. Um, and I had heard that Bill was really bad with the media when he was in Cleveland and I don't know, Andre Risen had just got there. It was like my boy. So I was like golden. I was going to party with Andre, but Bill kind of went against type and invited me on the field during practice and kind of like, um, you know, was very welcoming to me. And we, I had kind of always thought, you know, Parcells gets too much credit. Belichick is really a lot of what's gone on there. And I, and after I got to know Bill, then I kind of stuck by that. And then Bill got fired and was an assistant again for Parcells. And so he, he really, we had a really good relationship. Then he became the Patriots coach and it wasn't quite like that, but he would call me, you know, if I tried, if I, he'd call me on the Friday and we'd talk and he would give me some off the record guidance on some things. And it was all good until the two things happened around the same time. Number one, I left Sports Illustrated and went to Yahoo. Suddenly I was a columnist who gives his opinion. And number two, a videotaping scandal erupted mm. that for which he was very culpable. And I had to write columns. Now I'll go back and show you what I wrote. Um, I basically wrote something to the effect of this is about your petty feud with Eric Mangini. He knew you were doing it. You're so arrogant. You did it anyway. Be the bigger man, dude. You're Bill Belichick. You've won three Super Bowls. What I did not do, I'd say that was like a seven. What I did not do was a 10, which was you're a cheater. This invalidates everything you've ever done. You never would have won without this. You are the black Sox, right? So I didn't think, I thought it was sustainable when I wrote I think from Bill's perspective, if he would have enunciated it, what he would have said was probably, dude, I thought we were like better than this. And you didn't even warn me. I would have appreciated like some sort of heads up here. 
And by the way, I guess I didn't realize your job changed so dramatically. But instead, what happened was they were undefeated that year and they were playing the Colts who were also, I think undefeated at the time or, or once defeated. And this was going to be like the big test of whether they could go undefeated is in November. And they went into the RCA dome and beat Indy. And so after the game, I kind of walked to the bus with Brady eventually out of the locker room, got some stuff. And I was walking back across that hallway and Bill was walking out with bears. who was like his personal kind of PR guy that he had brought with him for the jets. who I knew and Bill had a roller bag and he had a Dixie cup full of Coke. And I was, and it was the first time I'd seen him since that article had come out. We hadn't talked and I was walking right, you know, passing him. And I just kind of said, hi, Bill, like I normally would. And he just kept walking and I was stunned. I was shocked. Not quite like if you did it to me, but like, you know, clo- close, close to that. Yeah. Like he and, and I just go, I don't even get a hello. And he keeps walking, but he takes the Dixie cup and throws it against the wall. Coke flies everywhere and just keeps walking. And I was like, Whoa. And bears turned around and I started to like, and he goes with what you wrote, what do you expect? And I go seriously. And, you know, I thought about, you know, writing a big email to bears and trying to patch it up. And at one point I was just like, you know what, man, I'm a columnist now. It is what it is. So that was really the, that was the end of it. And that was in 07. Um, I have awkwardly, like said hi to him when he wasn't looking or asked him a question at a press conference once in a while, just to make him look at me and speak a few times. But for the most, uh, we were at a, oh, I was having dinner at the combine with Jeff Fisher, just me and Jeff Fisher. Bill had just won the Super Bowl, and it was Bill, Mike Lombardi and like one other guy at his table. And someone came over to say hi to Jeff. And all of a sudden we were all five, like huddled at a little table at the Capitol grill and Indy over stakes. And it was super awkward and weird, but look, I I think there's a way that I could, you know, come back together with him at some point. He probably does not, but uh, you know, it's okay to not be tight with everyone, especially when you're a columnist and you have to give your opinion. It is what it is. Yeah. I mean, the the job of a columnist or even just a journalist in general is not to make the, the person that you're covering like you. Right. Uh, I, I your mean, job is, is to cover the story. And, and it that, is that good is, to have relationships. Happen. I, I have relationships. Yeah. You have relationships. But when people break the rules, your job, your job is to actually cover it. And the good thing is there's 32 coaches in right. the NFL. And, and he's I've just had, one. And I've had things happen that dramatically with other people like Mike Holmgren. And eventually we started speaking again. It took a while. Um, I've had it happen with people and pretty quickly after we got back to being okay. And it doesn't happen often because, you know, I, if, if I give an opinion and someone doesn't like it, okay, we're, we're, we might not be friends anymore. If I, if you feel like I broke your confidence or we had an understanding, I wasn't going to report or write something. And I did, which is my, my goal is for that. Never, ever, ever to have happened. Very few times it's happened some of those I think are the other person's misperceptions. Some of them I would say are my bad for not spelling it out. And I feel bad about those things. And those are hard ones. Like I don't want relationships to end over um, even the perception that I didn't 
do that well, but yeah. Um, you know, I, Al Davis banned me from the locker room many times. He had a cop at the door in Kansas city w- with a gun. Wouldn't let me in. He got fined $25,000 by the league. I went on the radio on Jim Rome and said, Al, next time cut out the middleman, write me a check for 17,000. I just won't come. I mean, yeah, I was, I was a lot, but you know, Al Davis and I had this horrible relationship and the, uh, you know, it was never okay. Although it was, it was weird. We, we started to align on some things even after his passing where we, Al and I would have agreed on that, but one of the most surreal are you, things. Are I, you and Al Davis going to the same place after it's all the after party? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I think there's more than two places and I don't think uh, Al and I, I don't think I mean, Al's going where we're going. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I decided to do a big sports illustrated story on Amy Trask, who at the time was the uh, essentially the CEO of the Raiders and give Al a lot of credit for many things he did that were progressive. And that was one, and he didn't do it to be progressive. He did it because Amy Trask is a badass and he thought she could run his organization really well and be like him. And Amy and I, you know, we went to the same, not the same time, but we went to the same elementary school, different time. We went to the same high school, went to both went to Cal um, lived in the same neighborhood of the Oakland Hills. So we had a lot of parallels and we had a very, nuanced relationship where sometimes she just detested me and I thought she stood for everything horrible. And sometimes we're very friendly. So it took a long time, but I finally talked Amy into letting me write a profile on her for sports illustrated, which I think in some ways she regrets and in some ways, like it gave her the princess of darkness nickname, like she loved it. So, um, I put in a request to talk to Al for that story. And, his longtime um, assistant Fudgy, they called her. Uh, you know, I, I took the, re- I called her, I gave her the request, and I, I just assumed I could say Al Davis refused to comment. So I'm doing some like radio thing in Seattle, like a live charity thing that they had me appear at. And all of a sudden I get a call from a 510 number. I don't even know if there was caller ID back then. And it's Fudgy. And she's like, um, Will you be available in an hour? And I said, yeah. And so I kind of walked out over by Puget Sound on the that like, you know, long, you know, kind of wharf area that you can walk on all alone. And my phone rings. Hello, Mike. Hello, Michael. This is Al Davis. And I go, hi, Mr. Davis. Thanks for talking to me. And he goes, oh, I'm not talking to you. I'm just doing something for Amy. And, you know, gave me a 40 minute interview were, you know, on the record talking about Amy Trask and uh, there were some hilarious moments in it. And we never talked after that, but um, you know, uh, it's possible that and no one's ever going to hate me as much as Al Davis did. And we spoke. No, oh, there you go. Once, who, one time. Uh, before we go here, who else in the NFL hates you almost as much as Bill Belichick or Al Davis? Wow. Uh, it's funny. Some of the people I've crushed the most, um, including Josh McDaniels, I'm like, I'm in a really good place with I've Josh McDaniels and I are, you know, I think we get along pretty well. We text, you know, I I've been pretty supportive as he tries to, you know, do a second act as a head coach, I think in a more, in a more measured way that doesn't, just emulate bill personality wise. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, th- there've been some people like that, that I've kind of, uh, pummeled. Um, but 
uh, who still hates me? The, that's a great question. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a few of them. Uh, it, but usually, honestly, Sage, usually a lot of times it's me feeling the same way. And sometimes I just decide I don't want to talk to this person. You know, like, uh, you know, I'm pretty close with uh, Hugh Jackson uh, for better or worse. And uh, I really like the way some things went down in Cleveland. And I know a lot because of Hugh. Um, or at least his version of it. So say John Dorsey and I don't have a great relationship since then, you know, Jimmy Haslam and I are not going to be, you know, super close, but uh, it's not surprising that someone that graduated from Cal Berkeley uh, and the guy that owns, I guess, hundreds of gas stations uh, around the country aren't. And was accused of rampant fraud uh, on an insane level that I guess he, settled that financially somehow. So I don't know. Things work themselves out. Things don't work themselves yeah, out. Had a way. I, you know, and Sage, I will say this. So I'm very close to Dennis Rod, but I did a book with him. We go way, way back. I, I love him. But, you know, the whole six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing, like it kind of freaks me out in Dennis Rodman's case that two people that he calls friends, and I know he calls me a friend, but two other people that he calls friends are a, mer- a, a one of the most horrible leaders that we've ever seen on this earth and Kim Jong-un. Uh, and so I, 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 and I've had conversations with Dennis about this. And finally, one day I got so fed up, but he said something nice about the then president and he had already said plenty of nice things about Kim Jong-un or non-mead. And there's a cheap trick song. It's called, I love you, honey, but I hate your friends. I just texted him the song. I, I just, you know, I don't need, I don't know how to process the fact that I'm one degree removed from Kim Jong-un. Yeah. And, and as I said, one of the most horrible yeah. ruinous leaders that the world has ever seen and Kim Jong-un also going to different after parties than, than you and I are going to. Uh, yeah. Sure. I, I think Kim Jong-un is going to a place where if there is like karma and there is torture, I think he's going to be. Yeah. It's extremely perpetually warm. Very warm. Yeah. 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 Very warm there. Well, I, I appreciate your time. I, I appreciate coming on today. Uh, I'm excited to see what Brock Purdy does. Um, if he does win a Super Bowl, I think you should write the book. I, think I mean, who else it. would he? I mean, Iowa ties out of nowhere sensation, uh, Super Bowl champion. I mean, Sage, they even had me sign this American underdog helmet, uh, which is pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I would agree. But also, I just want everyone in Iowa and around the country really to know that I'm an investigative reporter and I will be trying to find out everything I can about Brock Purdy. But one thing I will not intentionally try to find out is whether the nickname is metaphorical, anatomical, or both. If it is the latter, if it has to do with the anatomy in a literal way, I'm not trying to learn the answer to that. I may learn it without trying. I, after all, you know what my job description is, but that's not my intent. But I will say that metaphorically, I love the decadent. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Silver. This is why I hang out with them at the Super Bowls, at the Combines. 
uh, any sort of event that I sort of show up at, and he is there. It's There's not no a it, person. It to, doesn't to rhyme. It doesn't rhyme, and it's not true that they call me Old Balls Mike. That is not true. <laughs> I've heard that before from random people. All right, uh, Mike. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, we'll be following you through as 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 the season goes. Should be interesting. 49ers, Um, really interesting spot. Great, great team. Great defense. Now a rookie quarterback from Iowa State. I would throw this against the wall if it were a Dixie cup and also if it were not my wall, but uh, there you go. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mike. And uh, I appreciate it till next time. Thank you, Sid. Iowa everywhere.